You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Harriet's an intern in our Leadership Academy, and we love her very much, and we're really appreciative that she shared her story. That's one of the things we want to do here is make space, uh, not just in this series, but really all the time, for people to share how they're honestly feeling about things. How am I doing without the lights on? You guys still see me? I feel like it makes me look a little bit better, to be honest, and that's what this is all about. So, hey, I want to share with you, just as we get into this issue this morning of talking about reconciliation and how you go about, biblically go about um, making uh, peace with someone that's hurt you, Um, I just want to identify our two biggest enemies here this morning. It's worth knowing your enemy um, and, and those two big enemies are, are pride and shame. And, um, and, and pride really this morning will cause you to say, what, what am I even here for? Um, this doesn't apply to me. I've never hurt anyone and nobody can hurt me. I'm sort of, I'm, I'm stronger than that. that. It's worth hearing what, what Albert prayed in the collect for today, that God opposes the proud. Uh, that's an... That's a, a clear truth from Scripture, that God opposes the proud. And of all the people in the universe you want to oppose to you, God is at the bottom of that list, all right? So don't, don't, don't have God oppose you by manifesting yourself in pride. What pride does is actually puts a barrier between you and God, puts a barrier between you and reconciliation and peace. So don't do that. Shame is at the other end of the spectrum, but actually puts you in the same position, Shame similarly keeps you from reconciliation and forgiveness and peace. It, it locks you down in hurt and unforgiveness. And so um, in both those cases, we just want to put those on the altar this morning and just sacrifice them and then allow God to speak to our hearts. Okay, so I'm going to pray to that end. If that sounds good to you, that you, you can pray with me. Father, we ask that you would be very present here by your spirit. We know that you are. And we ask, Lord, that you would please unlock our hearts. Lord, please overcome our pride, our shame, all of the things that keep us from you and from peace. Please lead us this morning into reconciliation and restoration. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Hey, I've got so much to go through this morning, way too much um, to get through And so I'm just going to do my best. I'm going to speak fast. I'm probably not going to add in all my normal hilarious jokes and scintillating illustrations. It's going to be mainly, right? It's going to be mainly content. And so I'm I'm not going to get through everything. What I'm going to do is get someone who's on Facebook to put all of the content that I didn't get to, or maybe just the whole thing, on our Facebook page, group group page, and you can get it all there. If you want to take a bit of time to go through it, and I would highly recommend it. This topic that we're looking at and this passage that goes with it that Albert read for you is one that we've been through over and over again. This is my seventh year here. I've probably done it seven times. And um, one of the reasons for that is that the Bible is just so replete with passages about reconciliation and forgiveness and peacemaking that we're bound to go over it from time to time. The other reason is, is, I guess, less flattering, and that is that we just need to hear it again and again and again. 
and again. Because we're kids, right? And kids need to hear the same message over and over again until it becomes habit. And I feel like this practice of confronting sin for the purpose of reconciliation is something that we do not do well. We just don't. So that's not a criticism, that's just, I'm just stating a fact. And, um, and here's what I want to say broadly speaking about this whole series, all right? And I, I, this has been on my heart, so just, I'm just going to step off message for a second. I just want, I want to be really clear with you that as we seek to address what is a monumental issue of hurt received institutionally from the church and hurt received relationally between church members, um, we are really aware that we are just touching the surface of this and that this is an issue beyond our capacity to address from the stage in general, let alone over three weeks. But here's, here's what, I, what, I want, what I want to be really clear about. Our purpose in this is not to legitimise or illegitimise anybody's hurt. So here's what I know. I know that I was speaking to a lady in our church, member of our church recently, who was telling me that she had been coming here for a really long time and still felt really excluded. She felt like the people didn't welcome her and she felt like the pastors hadn't um, done all that they could to integrate her. And she felt hurt by that. And I also know someone who doesn't come to our church, but I know very well, whose experience of church when they were young was of repeated habitual sexual abuse. Now, that's a different kind of hurt. But I can't know that fact and then go over to this lady and just say, you need to toughen up, right? Because that's not like that. We're not here to do that. We're not here to judge your experience or the legitimacy of your hurt. We understand that there is a broad spectrum and there's a million ways in which you can be hurt by being part of a church. And so we want to, in some way, acknowledge that and just let you know we don't want to run from that. We believe what the Bible teaches, that sin festers in the dark and it's overcome when it's brought out into the light. So we want to do that. Now, I'm already off piste. So let me just jump in now to this issue of biblical reconciliation. We're going to get to Jesus, what I believe is Jesus' pathway for the church, which has been the pathway, the best pathway since the day he said it, written down by Matthew, ever since has been the golden pathway for us to follow when we want to address hurt in the church and, and come to reconciliation. But before we get there, I want us to understand a little bit about ourselves, because we might have preached this seven times, but as, as I said, <clears throat> there's a difference between understanding and application. So we're not applying this very well, and the reason for that might be something to do with the way that you are operating as a person. I'm going to talk about four basic means of communication, and I want, as we look at these four basic ways that people communicate, tendencies we tend to have, I really want you to focus on you. So, so don't hear me talking about passive aggression and say, man, I wish my mother-in-law was here. She really needs to hear this, right? Just avoid that tendency, which we all have, and just say, where am I on this? What can I learn about myself, all right? 
This is something that I take all of our marriage couples through when we're doing pre-marriage prep. So I think it's really fundamental to understanding how we can relate to one another in terms of conflict resolution and restitution. All right, so here we go. Four basic styles of communication. Number one, passive communication. I'm not going to read a whole lot of text, all right, so stay with me. Passive communication is a style in which individuals have developed a pattern of avoiding expressing their opinions or feelings, protecting their rights and identifying and meeting their needs. As a result, passive individuals do not respond overtly to hurtful or anger-inducing situations. Instead, they allow grievances and annoyances to mount, usually unaware of the build-up. But once they have reached their high tolerance threshold for for unacceptable behaviour, they are prone to explosive outbursts which are usually out of proportion to the triggering event. After the outburst, however, they feel, may feel shame, guilt, and confusion, so they return to being passive. So this is the person who's cut off at the lights and gets out of the car and smashes the guy with their fists, right? The event of being cut off at the lights wasn't a big deal, but they had been building and building and building resentment and hurt for so long that that's all it took to trigger them. Then, uh, once that's happened, they re- recognise, I don't want to be that guy. I don't know, that was like a J- Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde moment. I don't want to be that. So they return to being passive as a way of overcoming that outburst and then we're back into the same cycle. Passive. Next one is aggressive communication. It's a style in which individuals express their feelings and opinions and advocate for their needs in a way that violates the rights of others. Thus, Aggressive communicators are verbally and or physically abusive. These are the people that see everything as a win-lose opportunity, and they're going to try and win at every turn. So the best way to win is to be aggressive. They do this because it works, right? It does in the short term. If you look just case by case, the best way to get what I want is to be aggressive, either verbally or physically, Sometimes this can happen even without the person realising it. This happens a lot in my experience with men in relationship to women. They don't, we don't understand how intimidating we can be just by doing this, right? Stepping forward, puffing chest, clenching fists. All of this is aggressive behaviour that's, that's designed to get us what we want. I'm not saying it's just men that do it. It certainly isn't. But that's the, that's the goal. The goal is to win even if I violate the rights of others. Three, passive-aggressive communication, or as I like to call it, church communication, is a style in which individuals appear passive on the surface but are really acting out anger in subtle, indirect, or behind-the-scenes ways. People who develop a pattern of passive-aggressive communication usually feel powerless, stuck, and resentful. In other words, they feel incapable of dealing directly with the object of their resentments. Instead, they express their anger by subtly undermining the object of their resentments. So why is, why is this so popular and common in church world? Because in church world, we always have to maintain a church smile. Like, even if you've deeply hurt me, I've just got, I've just got to... Keep it together. And so the hurt that I feel is genuine. I can't just quench it. The smile that I'm putting on is a complete facade, and that drives passive-aggressive 
behaviour. This is the root cause of gossip. Right? That person has offended me. I've got to maintain civility, and so I'll just get them back by talking about them behind their back. Passive-aggressive communication is poison to community in general and churches in particular. Poison. It kills churches. Number four, assertive communication. Or in other words, Jesus communication. It's a style in which individuals clearly state their opinions and feelings and firmly advocate for their rights and needs without violating the the rights of others. These individuals value themselves, their time and their emotional, spiritual and physical needs and are strong advocates for themselves while being very respectful of the rights of others. I did this little experiment in the first part of this year. I just read through the four Gospels. I've got a Bible that doesn't have any chapter or verse markings. It's just plain text. And what I wanted to find out was, who is Jesus? Like, beyond the obvious, he's God in human flesh, all those things that we know, like, what is he like? What's his personality? One of the things that's fascinated me this year and really compelled me is moving beyond the idea that when I get to heaven, I'll have a redeemed body and contemplating instead what it would be like to have a redeemed personality. Like, what's it going to mean to have true personality without all of the faults and glitches and insecurities that I have within me? All of that redeemed, restored. That's a fascinating thing to think about, to think that I'll be able to talk to you without second-guessing whether you like me or whether I'm coming across right or whether I'm being passive or aggressive or passive-aggressive, right? All those internal monologues that go on, that, like, just to be free from that. It's an amazing thing to contemplate. We won't know what it's like until it happens. But we get a glimpse of it in Jesus. Jesus is the perfect example of assertive communication. Sure of the truth that he's speaking and, and committed to the dignity, value and worth of the people he's speaking to. It's, it's what the Bible describes as Ephesians Ephesians, somewhere, um, speaking the truth in love. Right? That's what Jesus does over and over and over again. Scintillating truth with deeply compassionate love. And so most of us, talking about what we tend towards, and I know that all of us are a combination of all those four things, but we tend towards one over the others, especially when we're in the midst of conflict. Um, all of us also tend towards ends of the spectrum when it comes to tough and tender. Some of us are just by nature more tough, more ready to do conflict. Some of us are more tender, more avoidant of conflict. Jesus is not somewhere on the spectrum. He is the spectrum. He's at both ends. And so we want to be more like him. So all of that to say that when it comes to this kind of communication that the Bible actually commands us to participate in, to confront sin in our midst, which is to say to confront people who are sinners, we need to know what our tendencies are and what God is calling us to be. And those two things probably aren't the same thing. Now, I want to get into what we do. What, like, what are the practical steps to addressing this kind of situation? I'm assuming, as the Bible does, that everyone in this room has experienced hurt 
in church. Either hurt from the institutional church or hurt from the relational, okay? And what the Bible is calling us to is to reconciliation. And so, <clears throat> as, as I speak, I want you to visualise a specific situation that you need to deal with, that you've been avoiding or that you've been dealing with passive-aggressively, right, or that you've dealt with in the past aggressively. Right? I, want, I want you to be visualising either that specific moment or something like it so that we can get something practical out of this. Now, I'm going to talk now about preparation for conflict. And I spent a good amount of time trying to come up with a word that wasn't conflict. Because I know that as soon as I say that, we're going to talk about preparation for conflict, I lose half of you. Because you're like, if that's what this is about, I'm out. Right? I will avoid conflict at all costs. Even if, even if Jesus says, you must do it, I just, I will not do it. So I've lost half of you, and then there's, you know, a third of you is actually listening to me, so I'm left with four people, and that's just a waste of everyone's time, okay? And I don't want to waste your time or mine. So I tried to come up with a word that wasn't conflict, but I couldn't think of one because that's what it is. Uh, that wasn't confrontation, I mean. Um, that's what it is. It is confrontation. It's recognizing that there is an issue here and then stepping up to it, confronting it. But before we do that, I want us to be aware that there's some really important steps to take that prepare us for that eventuality that will probably make the difference between that being a, a fruitful event or a failure. All right, you still with me? Come on, guys. Step one, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Jesus, by the way, Jesus talks about this all the time. He thinks it's really important. Matthew 7, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now first thing to say is that Jesus is not seeking to minimise any substantial hurt that you've experienced. He's not. He's not trying to whitewash this issue. If you notice, he gets to your issue in the end then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So there is that action of identifying wrongdoing in the part of the other. He just says you need to examine yourself first so that you can clearly see. Clarity is one of the most important things when it comes to this whole issue of reconciliation. We must be able to see clearly. And so Jesus wants us to see clearly, and he says one of the ways that you'll be able to see clearly is first by examining yourself. Please don't hear him trying to minimise the real issue at hand. There's a evil and insidious tendency in some people who are abusers of others to do what's called gaslighting. And I've seen it in my own counselling experience where the abuser will do all they can to minimise 
and illegitimize the hurt of the person that they've hurt so that they will be acquitted and so that the person themselves will start to wonder, well, is, is this really, am I really overblowing this, right? That is not what Jesus is advocating here. Jesus is simply saying, before you go ahead and address those real hurts, examine yourself. That's step one. Step two, prepare to overlook the offence. This should be our default position. Our default position going into any situation where there's conflict and resolution needs to happen, that the best thing we can do is have the kind of demeanour that's willing to overlook, willing to absorb. So it says in in Proverbs, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offence. What we're doing when we do this is actually very God-like. Do you know how many times you offend God every hour? And how many times he absorbs that without killing you? It should be our default disposition to want to ride the bumps that honestly, we should expect. Why? Christians should expect these things because we know the truth about humanity. We don't believe the lie that everyone's really good at heart. We know that everyone's broken, made in God's image, yes, but flawed and prone to sin. And so our natural disposition ought to be, or our default position ought to be to overlook offence. However, While I maintain that is step number two and it is a vital step and you must not skip it, I think if the situation has got as far as for you to sort of implement this process, you're probably going to move beyond that onto the next step. We don't want anyone just overlooking and sweeping under the carpet significant sin. The church has done that in the past to our shame. Step three. Prepare to speak the truth in love. So it's Ephesians 4, verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Right? How does speaking the truth in love help us to grow up into maturity? Well, it's because Jesus speaks the truth in love. He's done it perfectly as our example, and as we follow his example, we are made more and more like him. As I said, some people tend towards the truth without the love, others tend towards the love without the truth. We want both operating. Speaking the truth in love. The love that we have for one another as brothers and sisters compels us to speak the truth, even when it's awkward or confrontational. So some of us have believed the lie that the loving thing to do is just to avoid conflict when actually the opposite is true. It reveals a lack of love for your brother and sister if you prefer to, to, to protect yourself from awkward and confrontational situations rather than addressing the real issues. You see that? That's a very important thing to understand. Because in the heat of the moment, your brain, if it's wired a certain way, will be very quick to dissuade you from conflict on the basis that it's more loving just to let it go. Wrong. The love we have for one another compels us to speak the truth, even when it's awkward or confrontational. So you've prepared yourself to speak the truth 
Now you want to prepare to forgive and reconcile. I love this next passage from Ephesians 4. I've used this probably more often than any other passage in my counselling. You might have heard me read it slow and deliberately. I love it. Listen to this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. If we rightly understand the degree to which God has forgiven us, even when we were his enemies, we should always confront those who have sinned against us with humility and the inclination to forgive and to reconcile. You might be really angry about some legitimate hurt that's been done to you, but if you understand the degree to which you are an enemy of God when he forgave you before you did anything to deserve it, then that changes the way you approach those situations, right? John Stott famously said that, you, that, that one cannot extend an open hand of reconciliation and grace towards God and then withhold it from a brother or sister. Those, those things cannot exist together. Or as Jesus said, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So having prepared ourselves by examining ourselves, seeking to overlook the offence if possible, then preparing to speak the truth in love if it requires further uh, examination and confrontation, preparing ourselves to forgive and be reconciled to that person, then we can move forward and confront the sin in our midst. And I believe Jesus gives us a very clear pathway for this. And there have been whole books written on the art and craft of reconciliation and they're valuable, but what he gives us here in Matthew 18 is brilliant. And if only we would do as he tells us, we would avoid so much pain and church hurt. So I've got a little bit of time. Let's have a look. We're going to look just verse by verse at what he says to us in Matthew 18. So the first step he gives us, having prepared ourselves, is to confront sin in private, to confront that person who has hurt us in private. So in verse, eight, uh, verse 15 of chapter 18, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So here's our first duty. Our first duty is to lovingly confront in private the person who has sinned. I want, I want to be really clear about this. It's confronting in private, one-to-one. If we did this, we would see the whole big gossip mill at this church fall to pieces. What you do when you gossip about someone is you get the passive-aggressive thing going, which kills churches, and you make it immediately a public event instead of a private one. 
So when you confront someone privately, it minimizes their embarrassment. Most people are not going to respond with aggression to you calling something out. Most people are going to feel quite shamed and probably embarrassed. If you make it a public thing that everyone's in on except them and then eventually they find out, it destroys them. And the, and the opportunity for them to come to repentance is probably gone. But if you confront them personally, privately, it minimizes their embarrassment and ensures that there is an existing personal relationship between you and them. The goal is to win them to repentance. The aggressive guy, his goal is just to win. The Christ-like person, his or her goal is to win them. Win them to repentance. So you know when you're trying to do anything difficult, start a business, raise a family, get in shape, right? You need to have a goal. You need to, you need to know what the goal is, otherwise you'll stop. You'll give up. The goal here when you're doing this difficult thing is to win that person to repentance, to bring them home. But Jesus is not naive. He says on a few occasions that he knows what is in men's hearts. He knows what we're like. He knows that it may not just take one personal, private interaction to bring us to repentance. And so he gives us a kind of escalation plan. And so the next step after private interaction, he outlines there in in verse 16. He says, if he does not listen... You got verse 16. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that, quotes, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So he calls to people's minds the Old Testament law, which required, in order for a charge to be made against anyone, required the um, presence of two or three witnesses. And so he says, this is a good policy for you to have in the church as well. If that person, you know, refuses to confess and repent in that first meeting. The next step is to introduce one or two other believers who have witnessed the sinful, unbiblical behavior. By the way, this is two or three witnesses. This is not your two or three best friends who also hate that guy and want to get him, right? This This is not that. This is not a shootout. This is not a, a way to ensnare them. This is one or two other mature believers who have witnessed what's been going on who can say, hey, this is not just about this person. They're not just weirdly sensitive to what's going on. We've witnessed this too, and we want to make sure you know that this is going on, and we believe you need to repent. This is, again, truth in love. I would like to think that at that point, the situation is on its way to being resolved. And from my experience, it's either resolved in the first or the second step. Hey, I just want to be really clear about this. So just look at me for a second. If you start to wonder, just... If we did what our Lord is telling us to do, most of our situations would be solved at the first step there would be so much hurt avoided. And I've got to tell you, honestly, 
a few occasions and only a few occasions in seven years at this church have I had someone come to me personally and say, hey, you really hurt me when this happened. And in every occasion, I've wept with joy. Because that is a beautiful thing that's going on there. It demonstrates a degree of love and trust that isn't often exercised. What normally happens is the event happens, six months later, I get it 15th hand. All right? And any opportunity for me to make amends is gone, to repent, to make things right, and I have been dishonoured all the way through. And this is obviously not just about me. This happens to you all of the time. If we only took the first step, and then sometimes I've seen it require the next step. And that's okay too. Very rarely have I ever seen it. In fact, only once have I seen it go to the next step. Verse 17 Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, the witnesses, then tell the church, gather the church. Escalation. More and more witnesses gathered to identify what is really going on in this situation. If there's still no confession, no repentance on behalf of the one being confronted, the next step is to raise the matter with the church. I think this is best done in small groups where there is a big enough group of people that can kind of gather as a church, but where there is still intimacy and trust that's been built over time. Sometimes this can happen corporately, but I think the best, best way for it to happen is in a smaller group or in a, where a couple of families are involved. I think every time this happens, you should get the pastors or the pastor of the church involved as well. But again, the object, even when it becomes a big enough issue to gather the church, the object, the goal, is to bring this person to repentance, to reconciliation. And then the final step, the one that we really honestly want to avoid at all costs and only arrive to at the very last moment, is to remove that person from fellowship. So in the event that a, a believer in Jesus continues to resist the appeals of his brothers and sisters, he is to be removed from fellowship. Why? Because he's refused to submit to the church leadership and therefore he's behaving like an unbeliever. And therefore he should be treated as an unbeliever. This step is never to be taken lightly and without much prayer and fasting and pleading and wooing. So the way Jesus says it is the rest of the passage. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, an unbeliever. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. That last part of the passage, one of the most misunderstood, I think. It's so worth just outlining exactly what's going on there. Remember, Jesus, what he said there, has a context. We mustn't drag it out of its context. The context he's talking about is church discipline. Now, we're not familiar with church discipline uh, in the, to the degree that we should be. In the past, even a couple of hundred years ago, the church of our tradition believed in really three pillars of church life. And if you didn't have one, then the whole church would fall down. It's like a three-legged stool. They believed in the preaching of the word, the faithful administration of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and church discipline. Last couple hundred years, we got rid of the third one and the, the stool keeps falling over. So the context he's talking about is church discipline. And what he says is really profound. And if he didn't say it, I wouldn't believe it. So go back to Matthew 18, verse 17. And let's just read again what he says. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What he's saying is, is where the church has faithfully followed his commands when it comes to this issue of confronting sin, where they have faithfully adhered to his process and not stepped out of the bounds of that, then the conclusion that the church comes to about this person is echoed in heaven. God agrees with it. That is a heavy responsibility for a church to bear. And therefore, they should not ever come to any kind of conclusion lightly or quickly. He goes on, in verse 19, again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Take it out of its context and it makes no sense. Put it in the context of the two or three witnesses that he talked about and it makes sense. These two or three witnesses that have gathered in his name for his will to be done, as his will is done, their prayers are answered. And finally, he says, where two or three, again, the two or three witnesses where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Is God with us if we're alone on a desert island? Yes, we don't need two or three people to be gathered with us. Wherever we gather, he is with us. He's speaking specifically about this judgment of a person who is unrepentant and unwilling to admit fault. Jesus says, where you sit in judgment over that person, I'm with you in that. I approve of this judgment. That's a weighty responsibility. And if we don't take this whole issue of church discipline seriously, then we screw it up, and we have screwed it up over and over again. Is he saying that whenever the church makes the decision, Jesus is with him? Is it some kind of infallibility of the church thing? No. God, no. The church has got it wrong and will get it wrong. But where, we step, where we're walking in step with the Spirit and earnestly seeking God's leading in this whole process of calling to repentance and then finally, if necessary, at the last moment, removing someone from fellowship, he says, I'm with you in that. 
confront him in private. Private. Gather two or three witnesses. Gather the church. Remove the unrepentant offender. God willing, we'll only ever need to go to the first one or two. My time's up. Um, I'll, I'll get you the, the, the other stuff I didn't get to. But here's, here's how I want to wrap things up. I want to remind you, and this is really a thread that runs through this whole series, and, and God willing, just our attitude to church hurt and offence and conflict and re- reconciliation, all these things, our attitude throughout is shaped by one profound truth. And that truth is that while we were God's enemies, he died for us. While we were far off, he reconciled himself to us. And so that shapes all of our dealings with people, even the people who hate us. I want to read a little passage for you from one of my favourite chapters in the Bible, and it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I came up here without my Bible which is a sackable offence. I don't even know where it is. All right, so maybe I need some church discipline. Here we go. 2 Corinthians 5. That's okay. I'm good. Thank you. Um, the Ministry of Reconciliation is the heading that the NIV's put on it. It's, it's an apt one. Let me just read this and let these words wash over you. And then I'm going to do something that the church has done effectively for hundreds of years. I'm going to invite you to participate in this. I'm going to invite you to join me in a responsive prayer. I'll do most of the talking to God, but I want you to affirm the things that I'm praying by joining in. I'll I'll give you some more directions when we get there. But just just hear these, these words about what is true about God and us, and therefore true about us and others. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation is come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him 
who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.